Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 19th, 2018, and this is episode 2329 of the Survival Podcast. 2329, it is Monday, November the 19th, 2018. And since it's a Monday, it's time for a listener feedback show. We're also in a short week this week. It is Thanksgiving week. So we will have today's show, which will be normal. Tomorrow's show will be normal. It will be a standalone Just Jack show. I think I'm going to talk about food. I'm going to do a greenhouse show tomorrow. And I think I'm going to punt the greenhouse show next Tuesday because, you know, Turkey Day is coming Wednesday. Wednesday we will run the Thanksgiving special. I'll also be giving an interview. That means I'll be the one being interviewed to... Uh, to a really cool dude named Mance that I met through uh, uh, Vin, Vin Armani. I'm not sure when he's going to publish that podcast, but uh, when he does, if it comes out over the holiday, I'll put it out on Facebook and email and all of that stuff. But uh, I think it'll probably be next week. Uh, but when Vin Armani introduces me to somebody and says, hey, will you give this guy an interview? Yeah, I'll, I'll usually uh, uh, sit for an interview with him. That should be really cool. I like what the guy's doing. So that'll be coming up. And then uh, Thursday, Friday, will be off because – I'm big on holidays. I'm really big on holidays and spending time with your family. And I think Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving weekend as a whole is one of those times to do just that. Uh, and then I'll be back Monday and we'll be back to, you guessed it, our regularly scheduled programming. So what do, what do we have for you guys today here uh, with listener feedback? Number one, I have some thoughts on tiny houses from a Facebook post. A guy sent me an email said, hey, Check this Facebook post out. There's 10 tiny houses that Amazon will ship to your doorstep. And somebody commented in that and said, don't they mean they'll ship your doorstep to you? And I thought that was kind of clever. But I want to talk a little bit more about tiny houses. And if you want to do this, why I think that these kits and stuff like that probably aren't the way to go. Uh, this building something out of a shipping container is probably, not definitely, probably not the way to go. This concept of doing everything from scratch is probably not the way to go. This concept of building a rolling death trap, uh, unless you're doing it for a specific reason to vote, avoid codes and stuff like it, probably not the way to go. The way is probably a shed conversion. I'm going to make a pretty good case for that in this segment. Um, and I'll tell you why I think maybe it's a good idea for people that don't even want to live in a tiny house to maybe consider building a guest house or something like that, especially if you live in a place where freedom is actually a thing and they won't bother you if you do that. Uh, question on using sites like Medium to build your brand. I'm not hugely familiar with Medium, but we will talk about the concept a bit of using like these third-party sites because I see it a lot like Facebook in a way. Um, and some kids in New Jersey recently got stranded at school for the night Uh, John from Moore Park said, how do we prepare our kids for something like this to happen? And these kids did not suffer. In fact, they, they pretty much looked like little stupid fools in all the pictures that were circulated in this article I'll talk about. But it is, it is a legitimate concern, and we'll talk about how it really isn't that hard to do, even staying within the majority of uh, school rules uh, as well. Um, question on, or actually a comment on dog genetics Uh, with European versus uh, American lineage dog traits. And I'm going to talk about why I don't actually put that much into dog genetics from that standpoint. And a little bit about how I actually select a new dog when I, when I actually get the opportunity to select a dog. Uh, sometimes a dog just comes into your life like Lucy did off the street. 
But when I go out and, and, and start looking for a dog to bring home, um, what I look for has a lot less to do with genetics and a hell of a lot more to do with the dog himself. Um, next thing, sooner or later, the student loan bubble must pop. And here's one more reason why. We'll save details on that till we get there. Thoughts on something called generational shift. At least that's what I'm calling it. And growing wiser with your years. And a billionaire says that saving cash is the worst thing you could ever do. I'm going to tell you why he's right and wrong. And we will, without committing an ad hominem fallacy, look a little bit about the motivations of why a person that manages hedge funds for a reason would want to tell Americans to stay invested in the market. If you can't figure that out, it's not hard to do. We'll get into all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals provides everything that you could ever want in the world of herbalism. From stuff that's already put together and prepared for you to the raw materials and raw herbs, you need to make your own herbal preparations. And real people that really care about you that will answer the phone if you have customer service questions. They'll answer that phone in Utah, not New Delhi. And they will help you because they really do care about you. Western Botanicals has been a long-term partner of the Survival Podcast going on, I think, seven or eight years now. Eight years, I think, would be correct. The, this, this January, I think, will be eight years of partnering with Western Botanicals. Um, and they really do have like this higher-level mission. Their, their goal is to put an herbalist in every home. And I think having that goal larger than yourself is the hallmark of people that are truly successful with a servant attitude. That's what you'll find at Western Botanicals and no BS. And I'll basically put it to you this way. If it's legal and herbal in the United States, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. And you get a great discount membership program for free. We'll cover your first year of MSB if you become a member of my site uh, in of itself, that one benefit. So Western Botanicals, the company you can trust with the herbs that you're looking for. And I've always thought that... Herbs are the kinder, gentler, gentler way to take care of many health issues, specifically preventative measures and chronic issues. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, Self-Reliance Magazine. I usually say from the people that brought you two decades of Backwoods Home Magazine, I have a big announcement today that I don't really have all the info on yet. I have not been reached out to on this, so I'm a little bit in the dark here, but Backwoods Home is coming back. So, Uh, Self-Reliance is a quarterly magazine that was uh, brought out by uh, the second generation of people that bought you, brought you Backwoods Home, and I've really enjoyed it, but I've kind of missed Backwoods Home being around. So I'm going to reach out to Dave Duffy. I got an email today from somebody who said a discount code didn't work for Self-Reliance that was coming back. And I sent Dave an email without really digging into it and said, hey, man, what's up? Fix this discount for the members. And then when I, when I checked out Self-Reliance, because I always check my sponsors out, Uh, when they're a sponsor today, see what's going on. If there's anything around. I saw a, a, an article there with Dave standing with his son saying Backwoods Homes coming back. So that must be what the member was talking about. So Backwoods Homes self-reliance, kind of, you know, right in that same family. And I'm really excited about this. So anyway, check out self-reliance.com. You can get the self-reliance quarterly. And apparently Backwoods Homes coming back. I'm really excited about that and more details to follow. Before we get into uh, your feedback for me, let's take a look at this day in history. Um, this is another one of those things that goes back to one, the reason I selected this this particular segment for this day in history. A lot of stuff happened on this day, uh, November 19th, throughout history. But I selected this one because it goes back to that eighth grade trip where recently I talked about the Vietnam Memorial. This is another thing that I experienced when I was in eighth grade, at least uh, the, the memorial of where this happened. 
On this day in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln delivers what will become one of the most famous speeches in American history at the dedication of the military cemetery at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Using just 272 words, Lincoln articulated the meaning of the Civil War for a public that had gone weary of the conflict in what has become known as the Gettysburg Address. For some time, Lincoln had been planning to make a public statement on the significance of the war and the struggle against slavery. In early November, he received an invitation to speak at a dedication of a part of the Gettysburg battlefield, which was being transformed into a cemetery for soldiers who had died in the battle there from July 1st to July 3rd, 1863. A popular myth suggests that Lincoln hastily scribed his speech on the back of an envelope during his trip to Gettysburg, but he had actually been crafting his words for well before the trip. At Gettysburg, Lincoln, who began his address with the now known, well-known phrase of four score and seven years ago, reminded the assembled crowd of the Founding Fathers' vision, which established a nation that was, quote, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, end quote. He addressed the country's civil war, which was testing the endurance of American revolutionary ideals, and he honored the soldiers who fought at Gettysburg, suggesting that their struggle had already consecrated the ground, quote, far above our power to add or detract, end quote. Lincoln then succinctly stated the purpose of the Northern War, war Effort, quote, It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task of remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth, end quote. Um, one of the reasons the myth came up that, that Lincoln hastily scribbled this down on the back of a card or a note or something is because when he was finished, the crowd did not erupt with applause. They did not think, oh my God, one of the most greatest speeches that will ever be given. They were dumbfounded that he spoke so shortly. They expected a much longer discussion. But Lincoln in this case, and I'm not the greatest fan of Lincoln in many ways. I think he over-increased the power of the federal government uh, and used the war as an excuse to do so. Um, but in this case, Lincoln said what needed to be said in a few words and was smart enough to shut up. It was only later, as people read these words and understood them, that they understood what the speech really was, how, how monumentous the speech really was, and how this would be... One of those things that would live on through eons. I have a different take about this, though. It's not really different. It's just a, a view of a kid in eighth grade. As I said, when we talked about the Vietnam War Memorial, my first experience seeing that was on this field trip. But in eighth grade, back in 1984, I guess, or 85, one or the other, uh, I got on an Amtrak train with some of my classmates and traveled from Jacksonville, Florida, to Washington, D.C., And while we were in D.C. for about two weeks, we also went to other places. We went to Monticello. We went to George Washington's home. And one of the other places we went on a bus to from D.C., which was a pretty good you know, half-day ride, uh, was Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And we toured. And I have to say that the two things that stick with me from those many years ago are, one, the Vietnam Memorial, and two, the battlefield of Gettysburg. And walking that battlefield, and I remember very clearly standing at a place that became known as the high tide line of the south. It was the furthest 
that the southern forces advanced. And Gettysburg was really a turning point in the war. And it certainly had the, the, the capacity to become not only a turning point in the war for the north, which it did, it could have been the turning point in the war for the south. It really was the decisive conflict from which point everything changed. And while the war went on for quite a while thereafter, the outcome was pretty much a certain thing at that point. That was the end. And at that place, there lie buried many, many men. And they don't have the, the cemetery stones that you're used to seeing. They're, they're buried side by side, and each, each stone is like a long, almost like a curb, like a concrete curb type thing. And there's just name after name after name. And I stood there and I understood, even as a young man, the sacrifices that had been made on both sides at that point. And I understood that we now live in a world where our capacity to kill so far exceeds what capacity we had to kill back then. And yet so many men fell in that bloody conflict. And it changed my view of war. Up until that point, I had always viewed war with some level of like a view of glory because... Again, I grew up in a time when all the Vietnam veterans were heroes at this point. We had gotten past that point. There were movies uh, about war, going back to World War II, World War I, the Civil War. And I understood that men really die, and the good and the bad, and sometimes the good on both sides really die. And that sometimes what we are told is really not the truth, and that what these men were given in return for this was a solemn grave that people will see, that people will look at. But they were probably told that they would be heroes and thought of forever, their names forever. And while the names are on those stones, I can't tell you a single name. And I would bet the majority of people to go to that solemn place can't either. What they gave us in death was not so much something that we would look to one day and think this man was a hero, but maybe a warning. We should not let this thing happen again. And I do tell you that I do worry that the United States is on a path that could lead someday again to a civil war that will be much bloodier and far less, far less defined by sides. Because this war really was a war between the states and it was a war of revolution. One side wanted to leave. It's really what it was. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm saying that's what it was. This war was, in Lincoln's own words, to preserve the Union, not for the abolition of slavery. It was the cause of secession, but it was not the cause of the war. The cause of the war was the desire to retain the South in the Union. But at least in the Civil War, if that's what you wish to call it, there was a clear line. If there is ever this type of conflict in our nation again, there will be no clear line. It will not be these states against those states. It won't be brother against brother in the way that it was meant at the time. It truly could be brother against brother. It would be a lot more like Kosovo. It would be a lot more like those conflicts, Serbia, Yugoslavia. And we've had people want to talk about that war that lived through it. Well, it's not something we want here. We need to really think about how we proceed on both sides. Because I hope that no one ever stands at some place like this yet again, that does not yet exist, that, that becomes a new Gettysburg. A lot of you, I think, feel that, I, I don't feel that we've really learned the lessons of war that we should have by now, and I hope that we do. 
Those are my thoughts. Let's get into your feedback for today's show. So as we get into this now, um, Dave sent me this email, and it says, uh, Hey, I was listening to your episode about tiny homes. I saw this on Facebook. Amazon now has ten tiny home kits available with free shipping. Can't beat free shipping on a home. And a link to the Facebook post. And the Facebook post just basically links through to this article on returntonow.net. And it does show these ten... Um, ten homes, and I have a link to it so you can take a look at it. I mean, I want to talk about first of all what this really is. This is a uh, this is a blog that specifically looks to uh, to sell stuff on Amazon, and it does it through kind of viral stories. Uh, that being one of them. Uh, another one here talks about a, a woman pumping breast milk during a triathlon, and of course, there's. Links to where you can buy the breast pump. So I mean, it, it's there, and I don't put this down. I'm just telling you this is kind of what they're doing. And you know, you do an article about ten tiny homes and uh, range it from a few thousand to over twenty thousand dollars, and it gets viral. It goes around. If one person buys a twenty thousand dollar, you know, tiny home, it's it's a pretty good payday on Amazon. And I'm an Amazon affiliate myself, and uh, I don't begrudge that. But you know, or, you know, I. I probably am not going to try to sell you a tiny home kit on Amazon because I really what this segment is about is why the, those types of things probably are not good ideas. Um, one of the key words there is kit. Now, some of the stuff they're doing now where you can have something shipped is pretty much a, uh, a container, a shipping container that like you open it up and snap everything together and it's kind of self-contained. And I, I guess that could be okay, but I still think bang for the buck is probably not the way to go. Um, Just kind of talking a little bit about what some of these homes cost for what you get. Um, the the smallest one that they have here is um, the Live Lilla Villa Weekender. It's only 75 square feet. Now that's not very big, folks. Um, considering a 10 by 10 would be a hundred. All right, uh, for 3,400 dollars. It says it might make a Nice guest cabin or a man cave. My my man cave needs to be bigger than 75 square feet. Um, the Lillo Villa Escape is 113 square feet, uh, and that'll cost you $4,300. And the artist rendering here or picture here shows this little house, and there's a good thousand square foot of deck around it. You know, not including the footprint of the house, I guess. Um, I guarantee you that deck's not included for that price. Because you couldn't build that deck for that price. So, again, kids, they kind of, you know, embody what it could be. And when I started, and I'll, again, I have a link to this so you can look at it. And But as I started reading through some of the kits on Amazon, you know, you, you realize a lot of things are not included. Like, it's basically the shell and maybe not even everything you need to put the shell up. And as I've talked about tiny kits before, I think if you, tiny homes before, if you want to do a tiny home, And I'll talk a little bit about here by, like why you might want to do it beyond just because I want to live in it and, and be a minimalist. Um, I think that the best way to go is with a shed conversion. And, and just kind of keep those numbers that I gave you in mind. And I'm going to tell you what you could get at Lowe's. And, and someone will come and, you know, this price I'm going to give you doesn't include installation. But I can tell you installation is generally under a thousand bucks with all of these. Some of these it's a couple hundred dollars um, because these are kits. And they have everything you need. And the guys that do the assembly of these kits, assuming you have a flat level prefer, prefer, uh, prepared space, 
it's amazing how fast they are. We have a, a 12 by 20 um, that's not as big as the first one I'm going to lead off here with because uh, it has a loft. Oh, actually, ours has a loft. Our, ours just costs less, but this is five grand for a 12 by 20 with a loft. Um, and actually, you know why ours costs less? Ours is a 12 by 16. So we have a 12 by 16. It's not a tiny house. We actually use it for its intended purpose of storage. But if you want to go a little bit bigger, and, and I think you might, a 12 by 20, $49.95 at Lowe's with a window, an upper window, a loft, big double doors. And, and you can make a reasonable, um, a reasonable tiny home out of this. We're talking about, you know, we're talking 12 by 20 being about 240 square feet. And, you know, when I looked at these kits that they'll ship to your house from Amazon, um, there's, You know, you, you, you spend a lot of money to get that kind of square footage there. They have one called the Bella Cabin, and it's 237 square feet. So you're looking about the same square footage. And admittedly, it's a much you know more attractive-looking home than the barn-like thing with the loft, but it doesn't have a loft, and it's $17,800. And there's quite a bit of stuff that you got to provide for yourself to even get the shell functional. And if you look, one of the things I did like about some of these, they have these walls that are basically like a tongue and groove wall. And it looks like it'd be very easy to put together, kind of like snap together type stuff, where, you know, they kind of go together dovetailed like a log cabin, and the walls just kind of one wall goes on top of the other, and it just and it's all pre-cut. Uh, and it looks good, but it's really thin. Uh, the wall thickness, two and three quarters of tongue and groove, but just being wood with no studs. And that would make assembly easy, but it, you know, you'd have to stud it, even fault stud it, just to insulate it. And, 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 and thin wood like that is not a good insulator without additional insulation make. Um, and then again, you're, you're up at like 17 grand for what you can get square footage wise with a tough shed conversion for 4,900 bucks. And keep in mind, when I'm, I'm giving you these numbers off lows, they are kits. You would have to assemble yourself this price. But again, under $1,000. And $1,000 is top end. You can get them assembled. And these are starting places. If you see a tough shed, you can order off the lot on Lowe's.com. And you shop sales. You shop around. That price, you can pretty much get something like it installed for that price. Uh, especially buying, like, you know, you see these things on lots and stuff where there's direct purchase instead of through Lowe's or Home Depot or what have you. So this is just a feeling out the numbers. You want to go a little bit bigger, you can get a 16 by 20 foot with a true second story. A 7 foot 1 inch headroom. I don't like lofts, guys. I, I, you know, especially for sleeping, like, Kind of climb down out of a loft at three o'clock in the morning when you got to go to the bathroom because you had to get in the middle of the night once in a while. That alone, I don't want to do. Dogs can't really get up there, and you know, it's not really living space; it's sleeping space. Uh, it's kind of like having a hideaway bed that doesn't hide away in, in this loft. And I don't, I just don't like lofts. It's okay for a hunting cabin or something, but I'm going to live in it. Now this thing is nice. It's got uh, five windows, beautiful double doors. Um, $9,395. So under 10 grand. And now we're talking a two story for about 600 square feet for under $10,000. If we wanted to be bigger, how about this? They sell another two story, kind of equipped a lot the same way, 
Um, and it is 16 by 32. 16 wide by 32 long. Two stories. So you're looking at almost a thousand square feet. And again, you got seven foot one inch of headroom on your upper story. So it's a true second story. Now, I bet you're going to pay more than a thousand bucks installation on something like this. It's a little bit more complicated of a build, but let's say it's two thousand dollars. You're still at fifteen four for I want it there, and somebody comes and it makes it there in a day or two. And another thing I've seen with these tiny homes, I see tons of people. I'm building a tiny home. Seven months later, they're still building a tiny home, and whatever they have, you can't even move into yet. Now, you take something like one of these tough sheds, and you either do it yourself, because they have spray foam kits you can do yourself now, or you get spray foam insulation, or you do cellulose insulation or whatever, and you've got a pretty substantial little dwelling, something you can certainly live in rather comfortably. Now, you still have to finish it out, so you'd want to put in like a small kitchen, maybe wall off a room or two, you know, electrical, etc. The thing is, doing all of the electrical and plumbing work is actually really easy, because when they put them in, you still have to do the finish work. I would also say that it's probably possible if you go out and find one of the companies that where you're buying direct with one of these to upgrade from a 2x4 stick frame to a 2x6 stick frame and have some allowances made for windows and stuff and still keep the price in the general area. And one of these structures built with 2x6 is a hell of a lot more of a structure than one with 2x4s. Now, it's going to jack your price up, but I'm still saying you can go out and build something in the neighborhood of a 1,000 square foot with a shed conversion for $25,000 or less, less all in and well finished. Now, if you happen to live in a place where base, basements make sense, if you have that footprint as a poured or cinder block basement walkout put in, you basically added another 500 square feet, and I'd say for about $30,000, you can have about 1,500 square foot under roof. Now, I'm not saying you should do this, and I'm not saying it's going to be perfect if you do, and I'm not going to say it's going to compete with a 1,500 foot traditional site-built home, but it does give those people that want that option of being able to pay for a home in cash and slowly improve it over time, maybe expand it, put some decking in, Go with the compound approach, and, and you, you know you can bring in these little these little buildings that are like 150, 200 square foot for like a couple thousand bucks installed, putting in other things. And and, and as a homesteader, if I'm going to go the tiny house route or small house route, I'm much more likely to do something like this. And my other side of this, if you do full size appliances and things like that. Let's say that eventually you decide you want to build a site-built house. Well, when you pull everything back out of this house that you can reuse, you still have a really nice storage facility or a really nice shop building. And I just think it makes a hell of a lot more sense than a rolling death trap or these container homes. Everybody I've talked to has built one of the steel container homes. They're always happy with it. You ask them, would you do it again? They say, hell no. It was a million times harder and a lot more work and a lot more problems than I ever thought it would be. I've I'm, I'm, there might be somebody that differs, but I haven't talked to anybody yet that built one themselves that's like, I'll, I'm looking forward to building another one. I have talked to a lot of people that take this shed conversion approach. And my wife and I talk about either taking the one we already have or bringing in another one and making it like a little guest cabin. And, and I think we may eventually do it because it makes so much sense. And again, one of our folks that's part of our community, 
uh, has a Facebook group called Shed to, Shed to House. I'll put a link in the show notes. And I think if you want some ideas for how to do this, um, you're a lot better served than buying some kit on Amazon. I think that's one of those, like, Hail Mary passes. Maybe somebody will do it. What I noticed about, and I have a link to just tiny house kits on Amazon in the show notes in addition to this article. So you can see a lot more different options that way. Um, I didn't find any of them with a review. I only found one with a review, and it was really more of a comment about how beautiful it was and can you ship it to Puerto Rico, which means you didn't buy it. Um, I certainly didn't see any verified purchase reviews. I don't know if anybody's ever bought one of these things on Amazon. Maybe, like I said, the companies that do it, just I'll list it there, and if somebody buys one, well, great. You know, price in what the shipping costs and all, and just figure it out. Because, you know, free shipping, it's built into the price, guys. Come on, you know that. Especially when we're not talking about shipping something that fits in a in a uh, priority mailbox. If it ships, it fits. We're talking about shipping a house. So those are my thoughts on that one. Next up, kind of an Internet business building content generation branding question from Daniel. He says, what do you think about using a blog site like Medium to put some content on other than your own website to help create broader audience for your brand and to drive traffic details? As I'm working on my personal blog, which is thepresenthomesteader.com, I've been curious about either reposting material to a site like Medium or creating additional content for it to push more traffic to my page. It seems like a lot of people use it, and it could potentially be utilized to help your brand. I do realize it's a form of digital sharecropping, though, and I'm assuming they maintain some right to your content you produce, as well as possibly growing some side income by their monetization. Thanks for all you do, Daniel. I'm not real familiar with Medium. I follow a couple things on there, um, but it's not my choice of a place to get my information. That said, a lot of people do. It's pretty popular. And I don't think this is really particular to Medium. I think this is how you have to look at any third-party platform, whether it's uh, a blogging platform like Medium or Tumblr uh, or an actual WordPress, you know, WordPress on their on the WordPress world. Uh, if it's still around, Blogspot from from Google, um, or it's more of a social media platform, more like Facebook, where people do do some lengthy posts on Facebook and things like that. Um, or a YouTube channel or Instagram page or Pinterest or anything like that, I think it all has to be looked the same way. It is a funnel by which you funnel people from that platform to your platform. Um, and there's a big danger in not doing it. Uh, my niece and nephew run an Instagram-based business that they do very, very well with, and they just had their Instagram page shut down. Now, they're, you know, it's 99.9% that will get turned back on, but it's certainly a disruption. But because they run a membership site, a lot like what I do, um, their business is continuing to bring in income. They're about to go on vacation, and, and my nephew said, you know, of all the times for it to happen, might as well be now so that uh, our business is a little slower while I'm on vacation so I can actually enjoy it with my family. But had they imagine had they figured out how to monetize Instagram by itself, the way people do YouTube, and had not developed a database of customers, backup means of communications, other so what would have happened the second that site went down, their money would have shut off. And so I think that's how you have to view anything. How I might use something like Medium? Well, there's a couple ways to do it. One, you can post original content on Medium and drive traffic to your site. My problem with that, it's actually the best thing you could do. You put original content there and more content on your site, And if people like you on Medium, maybe they'll follow your blog. 
That's one way. The problem with that is I think to develop any kind of real following on any one of these other alternative platforms, you need frequency just like you need on your own platform. One of the things you might consider doing on Medium is taking all of your blog content and blurbing it on Medium and continue reading and drive traffic to your main site. I don't know if Medium has a problem with that. Some platforms do. Medium probably doesn't. But see, that would be a way that your, your content showing up in Medium every day. Because I believe, again, I'm not a Medium user, but I think people, a lot of times on Medium, they like have basically a feed conglomeration where they see all the people that they're following on Medium. Kind of like if you're on Instagram, you see all the people's images and, and videos that you're following on Instagram through that platform. And then when something catches their eye and they read it, they want to know the rest, they can click through. I think you can do that on Medium, and that, I think, is really powerful and probably the way I would go. So I would, you know, maybe just take the first, if you do an average article on your blog, let's say it's 600 words of content, maybe grab out the first 100 words, or if it's 800, grab out the first 150, whatever it is, come up with a kind of a static ratio, and every time kind of think of a place that kind of is a place that would be leading on, so don't be, don't be married to that number, somewhere in that range, and then continue reading would probably be the way that I would do that. Now, I don't know Medium, and I don't know the Medium audience. I don't know how the Medium community feels about that. You might find on some platforms people really hate that. And so it's not that there's any kind of law of prohibition against it, but the if the community itself like sees a person like that as a taker from the community, then maybe you need to find another platform. So I would give it a go, but I would always put the most effort into your own platform. And one of the things that you'll find is as you add other platforms, you dilute what you're doing in some of them so that you can do more of them. And I think it behooves us to find the ones that work the best for us and put the majority of our effort there. Always be willing to try new ones. And then always understand this. This is something I've had to learn with Instagram. It doesn't matter how long you've been around and how successful you are. When you're new to a platform, you're starting over. And it's a little bit humbling for us to sit here and look at about 33,000, 3,100 followers on Instagram after two and a half months of giving it hell. Um, but we're getting a lot of interaction out of that small group of people, more than we do out of you know 40,000 people on YouTube. So it's worth that effort, but you got to like determine, am I going to fish or cut bait? And again, if you're not using these platforms to build your following and funnel them to a place where you have the ability to directly communicate with them, somebody can take away everything you have in the blink of an eye. So use these platforms, but don't make that mistake. Um, next up, I got an article here from John in Moorpark. It says, uh, how do parents protect, prepare their kids for this one? Nor'easter leaves some students stranded at school overnight. And um, again, like I said, when you look at this article, um, it you don't really feel bad for these kids. It doesn't look like they're suffering in any way, shape, or form. But in any event, uh, there's actually it's an ABC News article on this, but there's an ABC News segment. I'm going to go and play, play the audio for you on this now, and I'll come back and give you my thoughts on this and tell you why. Um, I think in general, if kids get stuck in school overnight, it's not a huge disaster. They'll be okay. There's a lot of resources there. There's certainly you know the ability to feed and provide them water, uh, unless pipes freeze, I guess. Um and, and they'll get over it. But, you know, it could last longer. You could end up with a worse storm. And I'll talk about kind of the, the prep kit that I would make sure my kid had, at least if nothing else, in his locker 
uh, at school when we come back from this little segment here. ...of problems out there on the road. Some drivers fed up with the snow and delays just decided to ditch their cars along an interstate in New Jersey. That's not the only place, right? And mm. some students in New Jersey had to sleep in their schools overnight, the safest place uh. at the time. Eyewitness News reporter Candice McCowan live in West Orange with the story. Candice, good morning. Yeah, Ken Charlene, I'll tell you, those cars that got stranded on the highways just set off a train chain reaction. And I'll tell you that sometimes students, they get snow days off. But in this case, they were left stranded. And that was the case in many schools in West Orange. We're actually in front of Liberty Middle School right now. While it's the middle of the night, school students are still here. Now, this is where the principal has been doing a pretty good job of communicating with parents by tweeting the situation that is going on inside that school. They realized yesterday afternoon students weren't go going to get home. So they packed in the auditorium with games and movies, even pulling out mats for students to sleep. The superintendent tells me the reason their students were stranded is the traffic on 280. All it took was a couple of cars to run out of gas, stall or spin out to jam up traffic, preventing school buses from getting to the schools. And this morning, many of those cars remain abandoned on 280, making it difficult for the plows to even clear the road. There's a big accident, not to mention about maybe 15 cars stuck up there as well. That's why we can't get through. And the police can't get through either because there's just no, you have no idea the abundance of traffic. Yeah, and back here live at Liberty Middle School, I just want to show you the roadway in front of this school. It's still like a big old patch of ice and snow here. One of the many things that has to be cleared out before they can get those buses back on the roadways this morning, get to the schools, and get the kids home. And I can tell you that it takes a lot for these kids to be able to stay in schools like this overnight. I know the cafeteria staff has had to stay so that they can provide dinner and snacks for them. I've even seen a dairy truck making a delivery since we've been here this morning. Live here in West Orange, Candace McCowan, Channel 7, Eyewitness News. So, like I said, I, I, I'm not too worried about these kids. Um, the article, if you if you look it up, I have it linked in the show notes, will show a bunch of them taking selfies and doing stupid-ass gang signs. Most of them, I'm sure, having no idea what the hell uh, that means. But they're just kids, and kids are stupid. That's that's kind of the point, I guess, in general, when it comes to kids. Be like, you should be putting down the current gen. They're all stupid when we're in high school. Um, you know, and, and it looks like this school did a, a fairly decent job with this. But I think that's one of the things that parents never think of happening. Not, you know, people that, oh, it could be a school shooting. And, and the odds that your kid will be involved in a school shooting are lower than the odds that your kid will die twice in car accidents by the, by the numbers and by the math. But the concept that your kid could end up stuck at school overnight. So how would I prepare my kid for this? Number one. I think the number one preparedness item that everybody should have is a plan. That's why I talk about documentation kits and a plan and, you know, doing things like, you know, if you're going to store food, well, let's do a food, uh, food diary first and actually store food that we actually eat. So planning is always key. And the first step in a plan is to understand that the thing itself, whatever it is, could occur. So when we were, when I was in the military, you would always have a mission, but you would also have contingency plans. So this is what you're supposed to do. Here's the most likely things that could send the mission sideways. Here's how to readjust and exactly what you do if that happens. And, and part of that was so you would know what to do, but another part of it was just to reinforce to you, hey, dummy, just because we said to do things A, B, C, D, doesn't mean that something won't go wrong. So be prepared for something to go wrong. So I think one of the things I would do is have a conversation with my child. Hey, there could be a weather event or something like this. And see, that's what actually is good about this story. 
Number one, don't be the stupid girl with the gang signs and the selfie with all the other kids sleeping. Um, but see, here's what happened. Now, was it really a scary thing? You know, Debbie or Johnny or whatever. Uh, nobody got shot or nothing like that. It was just really bad weather and some cars broken down and, and, and buses couldn't move and moms and dads couldn't get there and the kids spent the day in school. Ah, it's horrible. I mean, you know, uh, but it, here's what they did and what have you. So the fact that the kid is aware that it could occur would be number one. Number two, I'm sure they fed these kids and school food generally sucks, but yeah, they do what they could. But I would say that your kid should basically have kind of like a augmented 72-hour kit in their locker. Most kids today do have a locker in school and a small bag with some basic stuff in there and try not to break the rules but some snacks and stuff like that. And, and just so they have some food and more comfort items. And, you know, most kids aren't very far from their phone and their laptops, and you see that evidently in all this stuff here as well at the school. But... You know, means of communication and things like that, obviously, as well. But snacks are a very big morale booster. And I would say, listen, Debbie, Johnny, Tommy, whatever, this stuff is in case you get stuck there. But if you break down and eat it, don't lie to me. Let me know. We'll restock it as long as it doesn't become a chronic, you're eating a Pop-Tart a day type of thing. Um, and then a procedure to go with the plan. So this is what I want you to do. If you ever end up in this situation, I want you to send me a text that says the following. That way I'm not going to misconstrue it. Since it says exactly what I expected, you know, Dad, they're saying we're going to be stuck in school. Maybe even give them a word to include with it. It means everything's okay. So it's not, you know your daughter's not freaked out in a closet while some maniac's running around shooting or stabbing people or something like that. Or there's a bomb threat. You know that it's exactly what it said. That way they don't worry, because I don't think parents think about this enough. We worry about our kids all the time. Our kids worry about us. But I actually don't think it's that complicated. Uh, it might be a case for things like a small transistor radio, you know, because sometimes cell phones don't work in these situations. But AM, FM radio works all the time. And is your kid old enough to understand that thing just sits there? We don't go rocking music in the hallways and stuff like that. But that way, if they end up in a situation where communication medium's down, at least they can stay in touch with what's going on. And, and just, again, sitting down and thinking about it. Um, also, having an understanding of, like, when your school is in this situation and it says to stay put, I think you should stay put and do what they ask you to do. And with the school shooting stuff and all, I do think it's also important to have conversation with your kid about This is what I want you to break. I want you to break with what the teachers tell you. I think if somebody's walking through a school, randomly shooting people, and your kid hides under a desk, they're waiting to die. If they can get out a window, out a back door, whatever, I don't care what anybody says, get out, run away, and get to safety. And I think you need to have both of those conversations. This is one you shelter in place, and this is one you get the hell out. And temper it with the age of the kid. Don't go talking too much about getting shot to a first grader. Because to them, that means it's going to happen. You know, when your kids are the age where they're aware of these things, and they're asking you about it, that's when you have the, the more in-depth conversations about them. But just the concept of this could happen, here's where it happened. And that's why I think this article's great. Here's where it happened. Because now it's not some weird thing the kid doesn't really understand. And, uh, man, it could be really bad or it could be really dangerous or it could be really horrible. Oh, look what happened. These kids just hung out and played games and watched movies and, and basically had a sleepover party. And then, you know, here's how to conduct yourself. Here's how to get in touch with me. I think that's all that's really necessary in this situation. And some little extra support gear. Uh, maybe some food, drink, etc. They can keep in that locker that's, that's preservable. 
And, you know, tell them, hey, we're going to rotate it out once a month. Once a month, you can just eat it, drink it, give it to your friends or whatever. Anyway, and, again, the conversation, like, I want you to have this, and I don't want you to get in trouble for it, so keep your mouth shut about it. And when I say give it to your friends, I mean bring it home, you know, every every fourth Friday and share it with them at home. Don't go getting yourself in trouble at school. Uh, let's go on with another one. Uh, next up, this comes from John in Orlando. He says, comment, American dogs versus European non-American dogs for homesteading work. American purebred dogs may not be best suited. Details, a while ago, uh, a listener asked if dogs were better trained in German or understood German better because so many police dogs and German shepherds are trained in German commands. At the time, he explained this away as most police dogs are just being trained in Germany, and hence German language, which is true. That's a little bit of an abbreviation of what I said, but we'll let that go. But I think a deeper, more evocative point underlies the truth. Police get their GS dogs, German shepherd dogs, and other purebred working dogs from Germany because German dogs are generally bred Uh, and better suited to their American counterparts for work. You have straighter backs and other features more conductive to prolonged work and health, whereas American German Shepherds, specifically American purebred lines, tend to be more often bred for show, sloping backs in the American German Shepherd line. This had me thinking about the uses of dogs in farming, ranching, homesteading. It might be useful for the homesteader to know more about the general difference between American and non-American dog lines and corresponding attributes, health issues, And capabilities associated with these different lines of dogs. Thanks for all you do. John. Um, John, yeah, sort of, kind of, maybe. Honestly, one of the things that makes um, shepherds uh, from Germany and from um, other European countries, uh, in many instances, better suited for police work, et cetera, is they generally build the, breed the dogs with smaller body frames. And if you think about it, a, a working dog that's uh, 120, 130, or 150 pounds like my Shepherd Max, uh, they're going to have a lot more joint problems and things like that a lot earlier on. They're also going to be less agile. And, and, and the fact is, a 90-pound a, a German Shepherd will plumb F you up. They don't need to be 150 pounds to take you down. They really don't. So they don't really need a uh, smaller dog, easier in and out of vehicles, easier to put through a window and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot of that. Um, but a lot of times, you know, some of the best training still does play, take place with these types of dogs in Germany, and that's a big reason a lot of the the police-employed dogs uh, respond to German commands. But another reason is because that way the officer commands the dog, and um, the person that maybe is is the 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 perpetrator or the suspect can't really communicate with the dog at all. That's another reason they do it. That's kind of what prompted the question back then. But I want to have a more broad-reaching comment about how I look for a dog on my homestead. I'm actually not a huge fan of purebreds. I do have one, and I love him, and you know we probably will have a German Shepherd again. I think they're one of the better breeds out there, but they do come with problems, specifically hip problems, and our dog has them. And being big doesn't help with that, but even smaller German Shepherds, I have never seen a German Shepherd really, really, really age well. Um, the dogs that seem to have the least amount of health problems, in my experience, have been mongrels, crossbreeds. And um, I do think looking at the source... Uh, breed is useful there, but you know, my big old lunkhead of a dog, uh, laying here on my feet right now, Charlie Daniels, he's, uh, he's part pit bull and he's, he's part pointer. And if I had sat down and said, you know, I'm looking for a mixed breed dog that will fit in well at my homestead, uh, be good at defending my gate, work with birds, uh, from a standpoint of not eating them or hunting them, but actually moving them around, not harming them. 
Uh, I want them to be gentle with kids, but if somebody breaks in this house, I want them to tear an arm off. Like, just don't even slow down when you get to bone. Um, and I'm looking for that dog. I would have never come up with the idea, let's go get a, a pit bull pointer. More to the point, had I, where does one go to get such a dog? Where does one go to find such a dog? So when I go out and I look for a dog, I'm looking for a dog that has the right personality and has an immediate level of a bonding with myself and my family. I'm looking for the chemistry. And there are so many dogs that need homes that I think this is a better way to go for most people than picking out a breed. If you pick out a breed, you're going to go to a breeder. You go to a breeder, you're buying a dog from somebody that's mating two dogs on purpose to supposedly get some trait that both the sire and the dam, that's the husband and the wife, I guess, in the worlds of humans, you know, the mommy and the daddy, uh, have... And that may or may not be the case. And sometimes those traits may not be what you think they are. My first dog um, that I that I worked with as a bird dog was a Brittany Spaniel that, you know, named Britt because I'm such a genius on names. Um, but his his parents, in fact, there's still a kennel named after his 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 sire, uh, Cushion Peak Pat, was a, a national grand champion of some like 29 blue ribbons in field trials. Well, that seemed like a good idea. His mother was a dog named Burks Ginger. Uh, she had like 19 blue ribbons, national field trials. You know what they do in field trials? The dog runs around and flushes as many birds as possible as quickly as possible. Took some time to get this dog to understand holding, pointing, etc. It was a bit of a challenge. And those innate traits that seemed like a good idea because they won awards weren't necessarily so good. But that was a dog that was bought from a breeder, from a known line, for a specific reason, with no first contact between myself and the dog or my family and the dog. Charlie was a dog that we walked into a kennel, uh, a rescue kennel at a Petco, actually a PetSmart. And I walked around the door, and there's this little black and white pup sitting there looking at me. And I walked in, and I looked at that dog, and I said, that's my dog. Now, I won't go into the particulars, but it wasn't really a great time to bring a new dog into the home. It wasn't really a traditional time to bring a new dog in. But I looked at the dog and I said, that's my dog. And I walked around the rest of the group of dogs, and there were some good dogs. I'm sure they would have made good, good, good companions. But I didn't have that connection. That's my dog. So I go back and I look at this little pup, and I'm like, that's my dog. I get Darth in the phone, come back here, I want you to see this dog. We get the little girl that's running the, the, the shelter, and she brings the dog out, and I bring the dog out, and the dog immediately has a bond with me. And I can tell that this dog is going to fit. Now, my temperance with that is I don't know if that's something everybody can do or not. I mean, I, I liken it to people that can play the guitar. and Like, well, you can lay to, learn to play the guitar decent, you know, a couple chords and strum along and play music in a week. It's easy. I did it. Anybody can do it. And you, they try to teach you, and you just have no musical talent, and you can't do it. So I don't know if, if that ability to sense that bond is something that's unique to me or does everybody have it, or does everybody have it to a degree? But I think no matter what, the dog has it. The dog has it. Just like that guitar has the potential to play beautiful music, whether you can do it or not, the dog has the ability to know if the bond's there. And unlike the guitar that requires you for it to make a sound, the dog has a personality, the dog has an individual spirit, the dog has, you know, a, a brain, and the dog can show you that I am the dog for you. 
And I think that that's probably the best way for most, especially homesteaders. You know, it's one thing if you're going to hunt rabbits. Obviously, you want to look to beagles. Not the only option, but you kind of like, you're a guy that's going to do a lot of upland hunting for squirrels. You look to, you know, uh, curs and feist and things like that. Like, they do have innate traits that make them, you know, good dogs for that purpose. But what are we really looking for in a homestead dog? We're looking for a dog that says, this is my place. And if anybody comes here, my people have to be okay with it. And my people are my pack, and therefore their protection is my first priority. And these animals that live here with me, that I'm not allowed to chase or go after, are also my pack, and therefore if something is going to harm them, I will get between them. We want an animal that is going to love our children and not bite them, even when kids do dumb things, because kids do. We want an animal that's going to be a good companion. We want one that's going to be easy to train to the basic commands and training of an animal. And if, I'm going to tell you this right now with dogs. If you're not willing to train the basic commands, you do not need to have a dog. It amazes me when we go to the vet or something. They're like, well, I'd like to get them on the table or whatever. Well, what do you want to do? I want to do this. Well, would it help if he just laid down on the floor? Could, would it be? Well, yeah, but will he lay down? Dog lays down. Like, who are these rude-ass people that their dog won't lay down? Or won't sit, you know, or won't come when called. Like, your dog is going to be at his happiest or her happiest when you have that relationship where those commands are followed. I put out a video on YouTube that I didn't put it out on a blog or social media yet, uh, but it is on YouTube and live and people are watching it where I'm working with my ducks and I'm bringing the ducks out and the dogs are, the dogs are not being aggressive, but they're in the way. So the ducks are afraid to go through the gate and finally I move the dogs out of the way. But I get to a point where, I'm filling the pool for the ducks and all, and Lucy's just being a pain in the butt. She doesn't mean to be. She just needs to be out of the way so they'll calm down. So I look at her and go, Lucy, house. And she runs up by the porch and just sits there and waits. And since I don't give her any eventual commands, eventually she's like, okay, well, I can go back and mingle around now. But that got her out of the way because she had that command. You don't need a German line, you know, German Shepherd or a Dutch Malinue or, you know, uh, the best bird dog that comes from this, this special kennel to get a dog to be that way. What you need with the dog to get that kind of response is a relationship. And I really believe there is not a breed that cannot be trained if you have that connection and that relationship to be a well-behaved dog. Now, I, loot, I do think there are dogs that maybe are, you know, maybe too far gone to fix, that have been feral for two or three years. Even many of them can be, but, you know, it can be hard, or they weren't given the right manners as a pup. But, even, you know, Lucy was 18 months to two years old when we got her. We're really not sure. The vet made the best guess at it. She'd been living on the street for over a month, living out of garbage cans and what she could kill. We brought her here. She did kill two of my ducks and attacked my turkeys. She got her ass beat by the turkeys too, by the way, because like 50 pound birds. That didn't work out. It sounded like, it sounded like she ran into a barn door when she hit the first turkey. This dog is fast as lightning. She's got husky in her. She's got that speed. She's got pit in her, so she's got the aggression. But if you watch the video I put out today, even though that dog was not a puppy and took time, I can have her around and I still worry a little bit when I'm pushing them. Because now I'm being aggressive. Does that mean I'm supposed to go do what the pack leader is and be aggressive too? But you can see how far she's come. It just takes patience and time. And I think that's way more important than breed. 
It's way more important than breed. Now, there are certain breeds you're going to make your job a little harder for certain things. Some breeds have a higher prey drive and things like that. But I'll tell you the other thing. The younger you can get that dog when it comes to livestock, and the more you can put that dog around livestock when they're young and correct that behavior immediately, that is not acceptable, the easier your job will be. So, to me... Ideally, you are looking for a pup, though I am totally for people that adopt dogs later in life. But ideally, for a homestead dog, it's going to be like the cornerstone of your homestead. Especially like a first dog that you're going to, like you're going to have multiple dogs. You're going to have that one dog that's going to become the cornerstone. And that when you bring another dog in, the other dogs learn to act because of that dog. That's what Charlie is here. That's what Max was for Charlie. Um, when we brought Lucy, it made it a lot easier to have him and have her look at him and go, wow, okay, so... There's the bird. I'm supposed to chase the bird. But the guy said no. The human said no. And look at him. Look at him. He's clearly the alpha. And he is listening to the human. Like dogs have that kind of a, not to that level of discernment, but that's what's going on. That's the human way we understand them. And so really think more about the dog and the relationship and, and get out when, you, when you're deciding to bring a new pup in the home and meet the dog, and look for the the match, the dog that matches your family. It'll make things so much easier. And, and be committed. You've brought a living being into your home, and a dog is not a chicken. It's not on the same level. It's not a cow. It's not a pig. A dog is a totally different being. They are really the only animal, in my opinion, that it interacts the level they do with humans. I, I would say the only other animal that, that gets to a similar level is a horse. And it's a totally different relationship between a horse and a human and a dog and a human. A dog deserves its humans to teach it how to be a good citizen, I guess is the best way I can put it. With that, let's take another one. Uh, also, John in Park says, this email to me says, Don't say you weren't warned the debt that won't go away. People in their 70s still have student loans. In the interest of brevity of today's show, I won't read the article. There's a link in the show notes, but it talks about how now we have a lot of senior citizens with college loan debt. Some of them owe a ton of money. And one, um, you know, I, I just have a hard time feeling sorry for some people. So this uh, this this lady named Stephanie Galante is the, uh, the victim of choice, the victim du jour in this article by CNBC about how awful student loan debt is. Of course, it's the establishment that is always telling people to borrow money to go to school and how much loader. So you see what I mean? Like they're playing both sides of the, the fence here. But here's here's the most important paragraph to truly understand the stupidity of the situation. Galante returned to graduate school in her 50s to study social work and borrowed around $35,000. Even though she's made payments for nearly two decades, she owes nearly $40,000 because she's barely able to keep up with the interest on her debt, which grew quickly at 8%. She is single and has a fraction of what her peers have saved for retirement, she said. Well, because she's stupid. Okay, I don't have any sympathy for this person. She's stupid. You're in your 50s. You decide to go get your your... your your uh, your master's degree, you're going to go to graduate school. For a master's in social work, and you spend $35,000 in your 50s to obtain a master's in social work. How stupid are you? Did you think that was going to add $35,000 of income to your life? Did it? 
No, because if it did, you'd probably be able to cover the, the debt. And why in your 50s would you take a student loan debt at 8%? Now, if you're going for your master's degree, I assume that what you're doing already has value, right? So why wouldn't a person pursue that degree in a pay-go model and pay for it? I mean, at $35,000, seven years, at five grand a year, it's paid for. Now, well, I wanted it in less than seven years. Well, maybe you should start for you're in your 50s, or maybe that's just how long it takes, or maybe you need to figure out how to make some extra money. This person could have went out 50 years of age. I'm pretty sure you could Uber. I guess not now, or not then, 20 years ago when she did this, but I'm sure there was something they could have done, delivered pizzas or something, and in four or five years had the master's degree and had it paid for Or at least paid for half of it. No, this is the problem with student loans. People can finance 100% of their education with student loans. That's a problem. I know you've been told that it's not. No, that's a problem. Because it's not just the education itself. They finance housing. They finance books. They finance meals. People have turned student loans into a way to live for four to ten years or more. And if you... Borrowed 35, made payments for 20 years, and owe 40, you're an idiot. Because you paid the absolute minimum, which probably started out being something like 18 bucks. And if you're in 50s and had gone to graduate school and you think that's a good idea, you're a moron. Here's the problem. Quote I've been using a lot lately for Men in Black, a paraphrase of it anyway. A person is smart and people are stupid. When you create a system like this, Persons behave like people, and people behave like sheeple. And we are at a point now where we have over a trillion dollars in student loan debt. And a lot of it is guaranteed by the government, and some of it isn't. This is your next financial mega bubble to pop. When people ask me, what do I fear kicking off the next real economic implosion. It's not the stock market being somewhat overvalued, which I think in some ways it is now. It's not being at an all-time high. It's not being at the longest bull run ever. Um, it's not record low unemployment. It's not automation. It's not any of those things. Some of those things will contribute to it, but it is student debt. Student debt. It is the rising cost of a declining in value asset with financing that would never exist in any other world. I, you go, Imagine without the government guarantee, and without all these programs to incentivize this, without the massive marketing push to brainwash people to believe that college is the only way forward, without a system that has literally created a, a situation where 60 to 70% believe, of people believe that college is worth it no matter what. It's a delusion. Imagine that none of that existed, and we came up with the idea of college as we know it today, yesterday. It was the first time ever. And you had to go to a bank and say, here's my plan. I'm going to go to school for four years to get a degree in social work. It's going to cost me $20,000 a year to fund my education, in giant air quotes, That includes my books, my tuition, all my shit. So $80,000. I want to borrow $80,000. I want to put nothing down. I don't want to make any payments until I complete my degree. 
and get a job. Then I want my repayment schedule to be dependent upon my income. By the way, millions of other people are going to get this degree, and a starting salary for a well-qualified person in this world is about $35,000 a year. Will you give me the loan? What, what, what do you think would happen? Now, governments can create illusions, governments can create delusions, and governments can subsidize stupidity. They can do all of this. And they can make it work, but they can only make it work for so long. In the end, the market will tell you the truth. And we are reaching a point now where people are needing to borrow $100,000 for a four-year degree for a job that, if they're lucky, pays $40,000 a year. And people that have been doing the job for 10 years are making $55,000. And you can go to school and learn a trade in six months and get a job starting at $60,000 or $70,000 or $80,000. Now, how much longer can this stupid shit go on? And we have a situation where people in their 60s and 70s are getting student loans. Because they can. Because they can. And it's going to blow. And it's going to be a big part of trying to sell the free college for everybody thing. Which is not going to be free. There's no such thing as free. While the entire underlying institutions are collapsing. Because we have degrees and shit. No one needs a degree anymore. You don't need a degree in social work. Social work should be like a... A six to twelve month uh, educational program with an ongoing CEU requirement with CEUs that can be knocked out for you know five hundred or thousand dollars a year. That's what social work should be. We don't you don't need a bachelor's degree to teach eighth grade. It's ridiculous. Now we have school districts where the teachers they can get a job teaching with a bachelor's, but within five years of starting they have to complete their master's to be able to teach fifth grade. In fifth grade social studies you need a master's. This is stupid. We have people getting customer service jobs that need two weeks of training to be able to do their jobs if they can read, write, communicate, and type. In two weeks, you can have that person qualified, and they're asking for people to have degrees because there's so many people with degrees, and people are paying more and more for a degree that has less and less value. And the concept of, well, everybody's requiring one does not make it more valuable. What makes it more valuable is greater earnings potential. And you could say whatever you want about, oh, but it's the experience of college. That's not how we're selling, you know, the experience of college life and learning and broader, broader, broadening your horizon. No, what we're turning colleges into on that regard, at least the 60s, 70s, and 80s, colleges were a place where there was a lot of indoctrination, but beliefs were challenged. Beliefs were challenged, and you had to, like, accept the challenge to your beliefs. And now they've become complete indoctrination centers, and anything that upsets the little snowflake, oh, we've got to make that go away and give them a puppy or a crayon or a safe space and charge parents tens of thousands of dollars, and then the parents can't afford it, so the kids take a loan. This is... You think about what a bad deal financing a car really is, but the reason behind it sort of makes sense. I get transportation for a certain amount of price. But mathematically, buying a, a, a $50,000 car on a five-year payment plan where you can't even get rid of the car until about three years and change into the deal and break even at about 36 months and maybe get a little money out of that at about 40 if you're lucky and bought the right car. But at least at the end of the day, you come to an end point and you got service from the vehicle. 
And even if you become to an end point and that car is only worth like $15,000 now, you can drive another five or ten years with no more payments on it. Now you take an education that is declining in its value and its ability to actually get you ahead of your peers and you keep raising the price. Guys, this is going to end badly and this will be the next major catastrophe. will either be caused by this Or it'll start for some other reason, but this will become the primary thing that brings everything down. So it could start with a general recession. Maybe it's caused by the concept that we've over-speculated. It's gone too long. Reality sets in on the market. We have a pullback in building, kind of similar to 2008. And additionally, at the same time, automation really begins to kick in. Less and less service and entry-level jobs. The, 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 the divide increases. The middle class collapses like I've been talking about for years. But what happens when all that happens? All these people that owe tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree can't get a job even at Starbucks anymore. And sooner or later, the government cannot guarantee everything. And you can't garnish the wages of somebody that doesn't have any. And then what happens is sooner or later, collectively, we pull our heads out of our asses. We realize how big of a lie this is. One of the largest industries in the, in the world right now is the university industry. And people stop going. And that industry collapses. And the supporting, I mean, I'm telling you, this is the next financial black hole. When does it hit? I don't know. I don't know. Not yet. Oh, we're going to ride this for quite a bit longer yet, folks. But sooner or later, this is going to end badly, and this will be the catalyst by which it occurs. Mark my words. Okay, next up I have an email here from Eric. Eric says, Hi, Jack. This is a comment regarding millennials. This is a recurrent topic on your show. I recently watched a series on Netflix called The 80s, specifically the episodes on how television changed. I'm a Gen X like you. I had forgotten how we, and he's got we every time he says we here in, in all caps for uh, emphasis, just so you know that. I'd forgotten how we were part of the transformation of the big three TV networks to dedicated TV channels for news, weather, sports, music, etc. How we were part of the change from roof antennas to cable TV. How we were part of the viewership which sought out and watched content that pressed the boundaries of what the boomers considered acceptable. Now I watch with befuddlement all the stuff the millennials are doing with constant mobile connectivity. I realize this is nothing new. It's the same thing we did to the boomers before us. It's now our turn to be the recipients and watch the change take place around us seemingly overnight. It only took a decade for over-the-air TV to become over-the-wire in the 1980s. And recently it took a decade for the telephone to transform into a smart device carried ubiquitously by almost everyone and used primarily not as a phone, And to add to the irony, we are watching cord cutting become the norm and bring us back to over the air once again, albeit digital rather than analog. I think there is a reason why old and wise are used together. Until we are old and we see the generations change, it's easy to get caught up in the moment. We think that our generation is the enlightened one destined to change humanity forever. The truth is every generation thinks that way as we come of age. And while we each leave our mark, none of us ever realize our place until the next generation takes over from us. Anyway, just a comment for what it's worth. Thanks, Eric. I think it's a very good comment. Um, and I will tell you this. Almost every single thing said negatively about millennials today 
from no direction to can't get it, you know, can't get a real job, uh, to ambivalent, to being stupid, etc., was all said about us when we were kids. The thing is, and this is, I think, another part of the wisdom. Yeah, we thought these old people don't know what the F they're doing, and we are the ones that are going to lead the future. In some ways we were right, but when they said we were stupid, they were right, and we were too stupid to know we were stupid. And that's what I've, I've tried to talk about. Like, And I almost think it's not fair to use the term millennial anymore. Millennials are now in their mid-30s and a little bit older. Like the oldest millennials are like 36 or 38, something like that now. Let me think a 36-year-old and a 20-year-old. We just you know, kind of got caught in the term millennials. And it'll change. It'll be something else soon. And, and here's the thing that you millennials need to understand. Even not you, the ones that are the upper end either. You middle to bottom millennials. You guys are like 24 and shit. You're going to be saying the same shit we're saying about you right now in another 10 years about Generation Z. You're going to say the same shit. I know you don't think you will. You're going to say the same shit, and you will be as we are, both right and wrong, when you do. Because young people are stupid. And one of the ways in which we're stupid when we're young is because we're part of change, we don't value enough where we came from. That's why... In general, as people get older, they on the political spectrum, left or right, they become more conservative. Not everybody, and there's people who go the opposite direction, but in general, the general megatrend is, as one becomes older, one becomes more conservative. Because one begins to value that place which we came from, that doesn't mean we don't value where we're headed. One of the biggest lies that they tell you in school, and I was told this when I was in high school, Uh, conservatives want everything to stay the way that it is, and progressives are for change. Usually followed up with something like, well, what do you think? Because what do you think a 16-year-old thinks? Well, I want things to change. I want things to stay the same. It's a complete lie. That's not a good way to delineate between conservatives and and, and liberals, or really progressives. That's a term that you want. Progress. Who would be against progress? Well, progress to what? I, I think that, and again, I am not a dichotomy guy. I don't choose one side or the other, and I am politically different than 99% of Americans because I would believe that less than 1% of Americans are true libertarian anarcho-type people. So a lot of people, there's a lot more people that say they are than they are, because there always comes the principle and preference, and the preference ends up going before the principle when you get to something you really don't like. I try to always stick with the principle above the preference. Uh, so I'm in the minority here. So I'm not trying to convert anybody to anything here. I'm just explaining in a logical way the real way things are. When you look at the, the value of conservatism, it is about not staying where you are, but understanding the value of how you got to where you are. One of the things that I, I find bemusing, I hear all the time from the left now, is why do conservative middle-class white people consistently vote against their own self-interest? I'm sure you've heard that question. Why? Uh, here's an answer. Morality. Morality. Because what they're really saying is, well, why, why can't all these white guys and gals that are middle-class, that are really poor, in rural America, why won't they vote to take the money from the rich people and give it to themselves? That's what that question really is. And it's because that group of people, 
think that taking other people's stuff is wrong. Now, they get in the way of a lot of other people's rights. I'm not going to, again, I'm not defending them. But when it comes to the concept of taxation, well, why, why aren't they for taxing the 1% more? Because they think it's wrong to take somebody's rightfully gained property. Just because they have more than you doesn't change that. And it's very easy to sell young people on the progressive ideal that we should take from the haves and give to the have-nots because they don't have anything. And whatever they do have has been given to them up to that point. They haven't really worked for it. And the things they did think they worked for generally don't have any value, like that you know, amazing education. But in the end, back to the prior segment, the market tells the truth, and you can be conservative, you can be liberal or whatever, the market is in the... In the non-politicized, I know i got to explain this because you're going to get it wrong if I don't. The non-political version of the word, the market is progressive. I know some of you just like a, a nerve twinged in your neck. Oh my God. No, the non-progressive to move forward. Okay, not the political way. The market is progressive. If it was not, your iPhone would not be more powerful than the computers that put men on the moon in 1969. The market is progress. And the market will progress regardless of the current generation. And the current generation will claim the progress as their own. And generally, the generation before them built it. They built it. Gen Xers built all the shit you guys use today as young people. We built it all. You guys took it and you're doing the next thing with it. And guess what? You're building the next generation shit the Generation Z will take and use to go forward. And that's what Eric's point is here. That we always think we, we are the most important thing. It's us. We're the way forward. We're nothing but a step. And the difference between the ideologically liberal and the ideologically conservative is the more you move toward the conservative spectrum on the macro view, not interfering with people's individual liberties and rights, not the social issues, on the concept of actually how to structure and run a society. The more you move to conservatism, the more you understand that you are a step. And the more you move toward liberalism, the more you think you are the future the less you are in touch with the concept that your time will pass. You're living in the moment versus living in the moments. Just my thoughts on that one. Let's go on. Got another one here. This is also from John Amore Park, who's just hitting it out of the park with the stuff he was sending me this week. Um, true, he says, billionaire Ray Diallo says, saving cash is the worst thing you can do. I have a link to the uh, story here. You can read yourself. But this guy is a hedge fund manager. He manages hedge funds. Ray Diallo. And basically what he says is that just by holding your money in cash, you will get the surest tax on your money. You will bleed slowly to death because after tax returns are lower than inflation by a little per year, and here's what he means. Over time, inflation causes the goods and services you buy every day to become more expensive relative to the value of the dollars in your wallet. 
For example, it would take saving over $1,495 in September 2018, the latest date available to match the buying power of $1,000 in January of 2000, according to BLS Inflation Calculator. So if you saved $1,000 and held on to it since January of 2000, uh, you'd need another $495 on it to be able to buy what you could in 2000. There's a couple things at play here. On one level, he's right. Now, he's not actually pointing to the real problem. The real problem is an economic system that ensures that inflation occurs. That The Federal Reserve's goal is about 2% inflation. That's what they want. And our economy is run based on that plan. And our economy actually works best based on that plan. That doesn't mean it's the best plan. It means since we... See, it's, 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 all of this is like... Oh, it's so hard for people to understand. It's like a game. Um, is are the rules we have for professional football the best set of rules we could have for that game? And that's a very subjective question. Could we make the game better by changing some of the rules? Would it actually be more exciting if we went back to the way college used to be, and I don't know if it's still is because I don't watch college ball, but if the receiver came down with one foot in bounds, it was a touchdown. Would that actually make the game better? Might make it more exciting, you know? Um, what if we got rid of the fair catch rule? Ball comes, you got to catch it. You get clobbered and you drop it. Hey, that's an opportunity. There's more more special teams plays now. We got you know more ways we can you know. Would that make it better? Would it be a better game if we put one more or one? I mean, there's so many ways that we could change the game of football that may make it better, may make it. We don't really know. But once we know the rules, the best teams play to those rules. So once we have an economic system designed to run on inflation, it runs best when that inflation is that predictable to around 2%. You got it? Doesn't mean it's the best plan. It means it's the way that it is. So he's right. And inflation is the worst tax on the American people. It's a hidden tax. Ben Bernanke admitted that on the floor of the House when he was basically grilled by Ron Paul. Yes, it's a hidden tax on the American people. So he's right about that. But is he right that everything costs more? Does a 55-inch TV cost more today than it did in 2000? Hey, you just had an epiphany. Actually, a lot of things in our society do not go up in price over time. They really don't. A computer that does 100 times more than it did in 2000 costs less than it did in the year 2000. What did a decent computer cost in 1995? Some items go up in price, some go down in price. Food is actually relatively stable, though it does go up in price. Housing has continued to go up in price. But housing is a situation where you can make inflation work for you. You buy into a property and you stay there, and it ends up costing you less to make a mortgage payment than it would to rent something half as valuable 10 years into it, in many, not all, but many situations. And in good markets, housing does not go up really, really fast. I know you think that's a good market when it goes up really, really fast. You just want to make sure your kids can't have a house. That's what you say when you want that to happen. The best housing markets go up about the same as the rate of inflation, maybe 4% instead of 2 So not everything goes up in, in, in price. The other thing is the money risked, there's no guarantee of the return. And yes, okay, on some 
meaningful way. If we measure with the right price index, $1,000 in January would need to be $1,495. $1,000 in $2,000 would need to be $1,495. $1,495 in September of this year. You're basically 500 bucks more, 30% more for it to do the same thing for you. But in many other ways, I can do more with $1,000 today than I could, could have done, I, I, I could have done with $1,400 in 2000. And that $1,000 still has value. So I, I think that the concept that some portion of your money should be invested is valid, and I have always recommended that. And the concept that having cash is bad, though, needs to be just thrown away. And, and here's why. What is the best course of action that you could have taken in July, August, etc., 2008, when I started this show, and what was the advice I gave? Get out of the stock market. And what was the, the safest play you could have made at that time? Cash. Now, you could have bought this dude's hedge fund. But what if the collapse didn't occur? What if the market just floundered or came back a little bit? Cash was your safe play. And there's always a place for some portion in cash. When I say cash, I just mean U.S. dollars. So I think that this type of advice needs to be judged against the overall reality instead of this absolutism. And I think that like the big lesson here is not, hey, you know, this guy really does well when you're stupid and sit in your mutual funds while the market collapses. So, of course, he's going to tell you to stay there because all his institutional friends are selling off their shit, telling him you know, what to do because this insider trading shit happens all the time. I don't care if you believe it or not. I think these guys make billions and billions of dollars in hedge funds. You don't know their buddy that's, that's dumping all the institutional money on the other side going, eh, Ramp it up now. Here's a little bit of mine. Yeah, they do that all the time and they get away with it. And there's nothing you're going to do about it. You're not going to fix it. It is what it is. But when anybody makes that absolute statement, you should always, you should never, don't listen to them. You got you to think for yourself. And I guarantee you this guy puts money in cash in between trades, but he tells you not to do it. Why? Eh, you know. Just saying, maybe it gives them some sort of a benefit to do so. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you a couple of ways you can help support this show. One is to become a member. You want to become a member? Please do. It's so simple. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and you can sign up there. 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode. If you thought today you got 20 cents worth of information and you're not a member yet, consider joining. Then use the discounts to get your money back. Another way that you can support us, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll find all of our reviews on Amazon. And today I have one for you that may be beneficial in the coming Turkey Day week. These are Fisker's 7-inch take-apart shears. Um, basically, they're scissors that come apart. And I used to recommend a brand of shears, and if you can find them somewhere used or something, definitely get them by a company called Red Yeti Wear. They stopped making them. Um, this is my number two choice, but these are really good shears. They're about 10 bucks a set. And this is why I believe kitchen shears have to be able to be taken apart. If you can't take them apart, they are not good kitchen shears. I will cut the backbone out of a chicken with a pair of kitchen shears, throw that backbone into a stock pot, and make gravy. And next week, I might be cutting lettuce with those shears. 
You got it? Do you really want chicken skank hidden in between the hinge? And now you're getting things like salmonella, right? You can take them apart. You can completely clean them. They need to be strong. They need to cut well. Uh, and they need to last. The Fiskars ones are second only to the Red Yeti wear ones. I really recommend them. You can find out more about them at tspaz.com. Remember, if it's on tspaz.com, I own it. I use it. It's in my home. I've spent my money on it. If I need it again, I'll do it again, or I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, again, the Fiskars take apart shears, and you got Thanksgiving coming up. Uh, these, got, these things ship the next day. Uh, free shipping, so you can have them for Turkey Day. Fisker 7-inch take-apart shears. By the way, if you have any questions or thoughts for a Thanksgiving show where we're going to talk about food or anything that you want me to talk about when it comes to, to making that a good day, uh, send that to me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. Get it to me by tomorrow, I'd say 9 a.m., and uh, it might get included in tomorrow's show that we're going to do all about Turkey Day. Uh, next up for you guys, Song of the Day. This is a really cool song, man. I'm so glad I got John Adam doing this for me. Because um, he finds stuff I would have never known. We're going to listen to a song today called Going Back. It's by a group called Smile, uh, run by a guy called Larry Lurics. Now, unless you are the biggest Freddie Mercury and Queen fan on the planet, you probably had no idea that I meant the prede predecessor to Queen and Larry Lurics is actually Freddie Mercury. Now, when you hear the song, you'll recognize this very, very quickly. This was a song, and I got a bunch of historical links for you, the stories behind this, the, the, the 45 albums that were released and stuff like that. But basically, before Queen was Queen, and in between some stuff, uh, Freddie and some of his folks were making studio music, and they did some of these recordings, and this was probably one of the better ones that came out of that time period. And the song going back is about kind of lamenting what it was like to be a child. When you weren't afraid to ask your friends for help. you know, When you could just drift away in a dream. And Freddie here again calling himself Larry at the time. Stage name Larry Lurix. Um, God, you, you did the trivia value of that little piece of knowledge. Uh, you Because know, you see that on Jeopardy? Uh, this artist was originally known under the stage name Larry Lurix. How many people would know that was Freddie Mercury? Um, but is lamenting that time and saying, basically, I'm going to go back. It's almost like a Peter Pan thing, you know? The value of being a child. And, and to me, that's one of those things where I've always looked at it going, there is so much amazing about being a child. But I also think of, you know, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And the balance of those two. Because... One of the reasons that we're so happy when we're children is we're so ignorant to reality. I think it's good to be ignorant to reality to some level as a kid. Like you need that time to develop and just be happy. And that's why when I see kids, people pushing kids a little too hard, like, hey, let them be a kid. You know, I'm all for teaching them resiliency and how to grow up and how to do stuff, but also let them be a kid. You know, if they want to wear a Superman costume when they're five, let them wear it. I don't care. Well, we're going to go to the store. All people are going to say, look at the kid in the Superman. I it's cool, right? Just relax. Um, but you really can't go back. Regardless of what the song says, you can't go back. But we can remember some of the optimism. And I think true wisdom, true wisdom as we age, is being able to have the optimism of, of, of being a child. The willingness to take risk 
of being a young person. And the temperance to evaluate that risk is someone with some years on us, the older and the wiser. And if we can, instead of shifting from one to the next, bring a piece of each along the journey with us, I think we'll be a hell of a lot better off. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. 